what was the plan itself and who was in on it? Exactly, and, and I'm going to tell you that. The, the plan was simply this. We had uh, over 100 congressmen and senators on Capitol Hill ready to implement the sweep. The sweep was simply that. We were going to challenge the, the results of the election in the six battleground states. They were Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, Wisconsin, uh, uh, Nevada. And, and basically, these were the places where we believed that if the votes were sent back to those battleground states, and looked at again that there would be enough concern amongst the legislatures that most or all of those states would decertify the election that would throw the election to the House of Representatives. And I would say to you here, Ari, that all of this, again, I was, it was in, in the lanes legally. It was prescribed by the Constitution. There is a provision to go rather than through the Electoral College to the House of Representatives, and all this required was peace and calm on Capitol Hill. And at 1 p.m., Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz, and Gosart, a representative, started the Green Bay sweep beautifully, challenging the results of Arizona. Here's the most important thing I can tell you about this. The, the thing that we were trying to deal with was, was a media which refused to acknowledge any kind of possible fraud or irregularities. Right. And well, let's get into it. I've given you, Peter, I've given you, I've given you some time here, and I think you, you've, you've explained that, and I'm going to follow up here, and I, I want us to have a, a back and forth, but that involves both of us. You just described a way, yeah, you just described this plan as a way to take an election where the outcome was established by independent secretaries of state, by the voters of those states, and legal remedies have been exhausted with the Supreme Court never even taking, let alone siding with, any of the claims that you just referred to. So legally, they went nowhere. And then you're describing a way that the incumbent... Hold on, hold on. You will get your turn. I just let you go for a while. Let's go this back and forth, sir. Then you will use the incumbent losing party's power, that was the Republican Party that was losing power, to overtake and reverse that outcome. Do you realize you are describing a coup? No, uh, I, I totally reject many of your premises there. First of all, the election was still in doubt and would be until it was certified. Second, the idea that, that secretaries of state, particularly in Michigan and, and, and Pennsylvania, were like innocent parties. I mean, Jocelyn Benson and Kathy Bookfar, the secretaries of state in, in Michigan and Pennsylvania, they were put in power by George Soros. Season two, episode one. New year, new phase. That introduction, of course, was provided uh, from Ari Melber's MSNBC interview with White House trade official and former assistant to uh, Trump, Peter Navarro, who's hawking his book by talking about the Green Bay sweep plan to subvert democracy in the 2020 election. I should say welcome to Capital Insurrection Report. Uh, this is a podcast dedicated to the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, in Washington, D.C. And I am Scott Kuhn. Now, Navarro is, of course, this, saying this is a perfectly legal thing to do. Um, and this is a man who has a Ph.D. Uh, from Harvard in economics. And he should really probably stick with ec economics. Because if, you know, this was legitimate, it would have been tried before, right? 
there would be no transitions of power, or at least you would have had the process whereby, you know, if the, the vice, vice president had the authority to actually preside and reject the electoral uh, votes, then, you know, this would have been done before. This is a, a novel extra constitutional intervention he's describing. He, he didn't like it when Ari Melbourne described it as a coup, but that's that's what it was. And the, the idea that there's some other way to certify the electoral results after your candidate has lost the electoral college vote is just sheer and utter garbage. Um, I don't know if he's actually going to sell any more books with this gambit, but he's certainly going to attract some attention from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. So uh, he can look forward to that. Now, this is the first episode of the second season of Capital Insurrection Report, and I'd like to thank you for your listenership. This project began as a way for me to sleep at night. I was uh, obsessively studying and reading everything I could on the subject of the Capitol Insurrection, and it seemed to me there was also a bit of a gap that I could fill. Uh, as a political scientist with a study uh, in background in the study of American politics, political theory, and comparative politics, now, I've seen more than a few parallels here to earlier uh, phases in history, different countries, uh, you know, perhaps most obviously, of course, transitions from democracy, um, as we've seen in Weimar Germany, for example. Um, and so I've always thought of this project as a kind of a seminar, and I've really appreciated the contributions and the suggestions of listeners, whether they be members of the sedition hunting community or other political scientists, or just concerned citizens. So we're here at the first anniversary of the Capitol Insurrection, and I think it's an appropriate time to kind of take some stock of where we are. So as you can tell from the title, I believe we're entering a new phase, and one that is uh, marked by, by several characteristics. Um, first is that we're seeing the first trial dates approaching, and these are mainly felony defendants. Um, I think all felony defendants, actually. I think everybody who's, who's get, looking at misdemeanors are, are taking the money and running. They are accepting those pleas, uh, perhaps wisely, right? Um, because, you know, apparently some of the misdemeanor defendants may have, may, may have committed a little felony or two. Um, and so, you know, they can always, they can always go back and revisit that, but maybe they're just trying to, to get the, those misdemeanor offenses, uh, plea deals accepted and hope that nobody notices anything else on some of the uh, video that might be surfacing at any point in time, apparently. Uh, new video just came out a couple of days ago um, from a, a journalist with a GoPro and more identifications and more criminal acts, more assaults are uh, being uh, identified even right now, presumably, uh, from some very clear video of uh, places and areas and incidents that uh, are seen from a new angle. So we have the first trial dates approaching, and, you know, these are mainly felony defendants. And if you, you know, if like me, you've been dissatisfied with the amount of time that some of these defendants are getting, well, felony defendants who go to trial are risking a lot. So, you know, we might get to see uh, some more time going on there. Now, now, that being said, there were some legal proceedings that were supposed to happen this week, but of course, with a massive snowstorm and uh, nobody, you know, well, not that many people apparently working 
in the judicial system in D.C. actually live in D.C. They're all apparently driving in from uh, Virginia. And so as a consequence, uh, you know, a lot of people got stuck on the roads for uh, overnight. That horrible, horrible snowstorm. Um, so that's one thing. More, more legal proceedings, whether or not coronavirus and um, the, you know, the weather will permit, uh, you know, we'll see. But the second thing, of course, is we're, we're, we're seeing more pleas and more sentencings and more felony proceedings. Uh, some of those felony defendants are saying, you know what, I don't want to go to trial. I don't want to take the risk of actually being found guilty on all counts when I can plead to one now. So um, we're seeing more felony uh, pleas, and they are holding the line for the most part. I mean, there have only been a couple, you know, uh, during the entire time period. Uh, felony defendants who've allowed to, to plead to misdemeanors. And next, uh, the third thing that we're seeing more now, of course, is the work of the January 6th, 6th Committee, which has been proceeding and uh, appears to be moving slowly to the center of the vast right-wing conspiracy, to the center of the web, moving in to the center of the whiteboard. And there's lots of evidence of that. You know, we're seeing things like, oh, a subpoena for Sebastian Gorka. Right. We're seeing things like, uh, you know, Sean Hattie being asked voluntarily to cooperate. So what I'm going to do in this episode is to uh, return to some questions, um, whether these be questions that are resolved or unresolved uh, or whether they've been asked here or by other people. Um, we're going to look at some some questions that are, are still kind of outstanding as we take a stock of, wh of where we are, uh, how my own expectations have played out and what questions have been answered in whole or in part, and what questions have uh, come up as a, a result of new information. Um, so, you know, I'll do that in a bit. And the main, probably the most time I'm going to spend uh, on this episode is uh, the last thing I'm going to do in this episode, which is moving to the question that is beloved of fascist trolls whenever the subject of the insurrection comes up which is, if it was sedition, why has no one been charged with sedition? And if it's insurrection, why has no one been charged with insurrection? Now, to my mind, this is a question that's pretty much been obvious from the beginning. And the answer to that question is pretty much obvious from the beginning. But people have been asking. Uh, they've persisted in asking. They, they don't really have, an, you know, they don't have a thoughtful answer. They think, well, it's because it wasn't sedition. Well, actually, no. It clearly was sedition under the law, um, but why don't we charge that? Why is sedition? Why is insurrection? Why do these, uh, why do these belong in the, the dead letter drawer? Right. That's that's a, that's an expression that people may or may not even have a reference for anymore. But there used to be such a thing as a dead letter drawer uh, at the post office, piece of mail that was undeliverable, and sedition and insurrection are kind of like that. These are not things that get charged anymore, um, and the question is. Why is that? I'm going to be going through the historical reasons why that is the case. And I'll mainly be relying on a series of 20th century Supreme Court opinions on sedition. Um, and the, the logic of it basically uh, applies to insurrection as well, even though there are far fewer cases on that. Now, I think it's kind of surprising that more hasn't been written on this particular subject in, in the popular press. Uh, but then again, you know, maybe not. I don't know. Um, the question itself, I think, for, for attorneys is a bit too obvious. 
The cases in question are central to the story that liberal legal scholarship likes to tell about the progressive direction of the law in the 20th century. And so, you know, maybe seen by them as largely unnecessary. They already know the answer. Um, I'm not going to go to any of the vast secondary literature on, on this. I've just read the decisions and uh, taken some notes, refreshed my memory. Um, but I'm going to rely on the Supreme Court decisions themselves, um, whether they be the opinions of the court, majority opinions, uh, or plurality opinions, or concurrences, or dissents. We've got a little bit of each of those, actually, in the cases of the opinions that we'll consider. But common thread is that they've all played a role in how sedition has been handled in the federal system. And the story of how it is today that charges of sedition and insurrection um, are in that dead letter drawer of American jurisprudence. But before we do that, let's look at the numbers. As always, sourced from Sedition Tracker. So far, we have had 706 individuals charged, which is an increase of one since last episode. Makes sense. Hey, you know, it's it's a holiday, right? Uh, 342 individuals indicted, which is an increase of 14 since last episode. Three deceased, one dismissal, no change there. 170 convictions, which is an increase of 18 since the last episode. All misdemeanors, except for one Matthew Perna, who pleaded to obstruction and three other charges, and Matthew Green, a proud boy who pleaded to conspiracy and obstruction, both of which are felony counts. And finally, 71 sentencings, which is an increase of 26 since our last episode earlier last month. So they were all, uh, all those, each of those 26, they were all parading defendants. Um, I haven't done the numbers, but just anecdotally looking at them, these uh, parading defendants seem to be getting a little bit more time than they had been, particularly early on. Nobody's getting the advantage of, you know, claiming that they, they struck a plea deal early anymore. Um, still, not a lot of time, right? You know, things like 14 days and a $1,000 fine. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, not the, the, the home confinement slash, you know, three years of probation uh, that, you know, we've seen in some of them. Now, as far as the, those, you know, the basic developments in the cases go, I think the one that is most telling is the Matthew Green plea deal. Uh, it seems significant. He's pleading to two felonies and he's cooperating. So prosecutors say that they're going to ask for 41 to 51 months. Now, we can assume that the government is going to hold Green to the terms of his deal, obviously. And it's significant that this is what a proud boy who's making a deal is getting. Two felonies, somewhere around three or four years, even with federal good time, right? And there's not a lot, you don't get a lot of good time in the federal system, uh, 47 days uh, per year served. And if you serve under a year, you, you get no good time whatsoever. So Green didn't even go in the Capitol. So it's, it's not looking great for his conspiracy defendants, uh, the other conspiracy co-defendants, right? Um, I know I've complained about the handful of cases such as Carl Dresch, uh, felony defendants who've been allowed to plead to a misdemeanor, 
but I think it's good. It's different for the Proud Boys, right? Um, the Department of Justice are uh, sticking it to them a bit. You know? So uh, Green had to plead to two felonies and he's cooperating. Uh, and, you know, he didn't go out into the Capitol. Now, as far as he's concerned, of course, I'm sure the best thing about the deal for him is that they dropped the assault on federal officer count that he was facing. And I don't think that other members of his gang who assaulted federal officers are going to get anything like that deal. Uh, if people who aren't cooperating, they're not going to get those assault charges dropped the way Green did. So I hope he's got goods on him. Presumably they would not offer him a deal like this if he didn't have something good, uh, things to offer on Proud Boys who are higher up the food chain than he is. So, you know, that that's something to watch. Whether or not, you know, you they've got valuable information, whether or not this is uh, information that he's going to offer at trial, or whether the, just the fact that you've got someone who has flipped is actually going to increase the pressure on other Proud Boy defendants uh, to say, you know what, we've been offered a plea deal. I don't want to have to plead to these felonies, but it looks like I'm going to have to do it. Now, for once, because of the holidays, the, the current events section of the podcast is actually going to be relatively short. Um, remember how I said we were moving on jury trials? Uh, again, I, I wrote that uh, earlier yesterday, um, but since then it was announced that all federal jury trials in D.C. would be postponed until uh, the 24th of January. And that's in an effort to deal with the surge in, in Omicron cases. You don't want to, you know, impanel a jury and have them all come down with, with COVID. So given that the, the latest projections suggest that this surge in Omicron um, might actually peak sometime toward the end of January, um, even this might be overly ambitious. So hopefully, you know, they can go to trial in some of these cases. But between the weather and Omicron, uh, you know, we're seeing, of course, more delays because that's just how the system works. Now, of course, the anniversary of January 6th uh, is this week. And there's going to be a commemoration at Congress uh, at the Capitol. Um, there's going to be a prayer and a moment of silence on Thursday on the House floor. And there's also going to be a colloquy featuring the historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham. So, you know, sort of already a year later, evaluating what's, you know, almost a current history, uh, putting into historical context. I'm sure that's going to be good. And there's going to be a session at which members are going to recount their stories from January 6th followed by a prayer vigil with members from both houses on the steps of the Capitol, where, you know, the scene of, of much of the, the violence. Uh, I'll be interested to see, like, where they, you know, where they physically stand. I mean, will you be able to see the Lower West Terrace Tunnel? Uh, will you be able to see, you know, these, uh, I, or, well, which, I'm not even sure which side of the Capitol uh, they're going to be on, but that's, you know, that's where, presumably... I would think would probably be uh, the most appropriate place uh, to, to do it, right? Would be the west side of the building. Anyway, um, so, you know, iconic event and an iconic situation, uh, you know, with obviously, um, you know, a little bit of uh, collective PTSD going on uh, for a lot of the participants. 
Um, you know, now again, there, there, there is a phenomenon that, uh, as always, you know, the, the pundits, uh, you know, are caterwheeling about this, right? Because, you know, these are the same people who are never happy with anything. Uh, the basic problem I, I've seen, uh, from multiple people is that, you know, Congress should go into session to actually enact legislation to address the problems that were revealed by January 6th or something like that. Yeah, sure. You know, um, but personally, I, you know, I wouldn't fault them for doing that. Uh, I think it's appropriate to have some kind of ceremony to mark the event. And if you think back to September 11th, 2002, I checked uh, President Bush's calendar for that day. It's still up on the archive website, and you'll you'll see that uh, Bush goes to Pennsylvania. Uh, he's got events all day long around D.C. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of government business getting done. Uh, again, first year anniversary of something like this. Uh, it's perfectly appropriate to have some kind of ceremony, and it's not at all weird. So, um, yeah, I just think that if they didn't do anything, conversely, it would feed into the narrative that Trumpists are pushing that it was no big deal. And if it was a big deal, it, it was done by the FBI or something. Um, so I, it is important uh, to actually go through and, you know, mark the occasion. Um, because, you know, I, I think it's, it's good for the nation. It's good for, for the healing um, and, you know, it's just uh, appropriate, given the, the amount of, of human suffering and, the, you know, basically the ongoing threat to electoral democracy that we're seeing as a consequence of January 6th. All right. So we existential threat to the republic. Now, there's another event that was actually supposed to compete with the commemoration, which was Donald Trump. Donald Trump was supposed to have a press conference at Mar-a-Lago, but for some reason, he decided to cancel. Um, maybe he thought somehow that his event would diminish the commemoration at the Capitol, but that's not happening. Just like his infrastructure plan, right? Uh, you know, some journalists have speculated that the cancellation is due to concern from Trump's legal team, that he might incriminate himself. He is you know, an issue with speaking extemporaneously and, uh, you know, saying all kinds of things, which in this context, you know, they're, they're actually legal consequences for the things that you say for once. So, you know, um, if that's on the basis of legal advice, it's probably good advice. But my own pet theory, of course, is that Trump realized that if you have a press conference, you're going to have to actually answer questions from the press. And I don't think he's actually eager to do that. I mean, especially if you're going to have a press conference dedicated to January 6th, on the anniversary of January 6th, um, you know, what do you think the questions are going to be about? I don't think these are questions that he really wants to answer. So, you know, I mean, I'm on the record. I was saying at the time when they first announced it, I don't think this press conference is going to happen because he doesn't want to answer a question. And that's, you know, that's what happened. Um... But, you know, I don't really care. I don't really care why he's not holding the press conference. Uh, I think it's actually, you know, he, should, he should hide in shame somewhere. Um, instead, Trump actually did announce uh, that he has some plans for later on in the month. 
he announced that he's going to be speaking in Arizona on January 15th, where he says, among other things, he will speak about the January 6th attack. So the venue for the event is the Country Thunder Festival Grounds in Florence, Arizona. So the Festival Grounds is uh, situated near the county seat of the third largest county in Arizona. Um, now, county is the third largest, but Florence itself is the 37th largest city in Arizona. So a pretty major league place, right? A uh, population of about 28,000 people. The venue itself is located at 2585 East Waterway in Florence. Uh, research a little bit about it. Found out that you can bring no knives, box cutters, or firearms to the venue. So that's good. People are safe. I don't know if I trust this crowd with any of those things. Um, seat cushions are permitted, but they can be no longer than 15 inches per side. So hopefully people don't, you know, try to bring those big seat cushions. Camping is available. So, you know, the, the clown show, the circus, uh, you know, who, who knows? I don't know. I mean, they do have campsites for, you know, it's, it's, it's mainly a country music festival venue, right? Um, but I don't know if they're actually going to open it up, but you know, uh, quite possibly a lot, a lot of let's go Brandon flags, you know, flying uh, from RVs at the campground, uh, if they decide to go that way. Now, interestingly, there's only one road that accesses the venue. So, uh, yeah, they're going to have to take that into account because uh, a lot of the reviews say there's a lot of traffic headaches. And also that the property owners uh, have a chronic shortage of porta johns So the place might wind up stinking of urine and feces. Um, some complaints about concessions. You know, I don't know if you can get a hamburger uh, or a taco salad there. Um Apparently, uh, according to uh, the website, you can bring your prescription medications, but if you do, you must be prepared to show photo ID and the name on your ID must match this name on the bottle. I don't know how often this has come up, that this is something that they need to tell their, their ticket holders about, but um, apparently that's a thing that, that people going to the Trump rally are, are going to have to do. Another story that I would be remiss not to mention is that both Don Jr. and Ivanka Trump, as well as their father, have been subpoenaed in the ongoing Trump Organization case in New York. Um, of course, the Trumps have filed a motion to quash the subpoenas, and you know these are the kind of delaying tactics they use uh, whenever they're facing any kind of litigation. Um, the case, of course, is... A bit of a warning sign for any future action against the Trumps in the January 6th insurrection. While these subpoenas mean that the work of New York Attorney General Letitia James and the new Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg Jr. is almost complete, it has taken depressingly long to get to this point. So this story cuts both ways. On the one hand, it hints at the emergence of a shadow of some forthcoming consequences for the Trumps, and yet, on the other, it shows how long a case against a client with the resources to engage in a drawn-out legal dispute can take. The possibility even occurs to me that Trump might actually face charges from the federal government before anything from New York State. 
one of the things I thought would be good to do uh, in this first episode of our second season here, Capital Insurrection Report, and uh, the special commemorative episode uh, on the anniversary of the Capital Insurrection, the January 6th attack, is just go over my notes and look back at episode one, uh, where I suggested 12 themes that I would pursue uh, throughout this podcast. And in reviewing those, it seems like I've, I've hit most of them. Uh, some of them more than others. Um, but I, I reviewed them in preparation for this episode as a way of kind of just taking stock of where we are. Uh, one of the first things I said I was going to do was to propose a, a like a base timeline and updated count of events. Uh, I've never really, you know, done a complete one because I'm, you know, thankfully I never promised that either because that uh, as time has gone on, the realization is, well, that, that's extremely daunting. Um, you know, that's probably not possible. What's the beginning point? There are some people who suggest that, you know, uh, we, do we begin with Roger Stone coining Stop the Steal in 2016? Uh, you know, how far back does, does this all go? Uh, or do you just look at uh, the events of, let's say, the 5th and the 6th? Or do you just look at uh, the events from November through December and then uh, early January 2021. Uh, nonetheless, you know, we've done a, a bit of this in, in a few episodes. I revisited it as warranted by new events. Uh, for example, episode 19, uh, the Matthews memo hinged very much on the timeline differences between the version offered by the uh, DC National Guard, Colonel Matthews, uh, General Major General Walker, and the official version offered in the DOD OIG report. Now, I still think that cover that story has been undercovered, but with so many developments in the you know insurrection story as a whole, that's really hard to blame the press for that. Um, although I still think they they've really buried the leader. They've missed the story that the uh, top military lawyer, someone who had a job as a top Trump appointee, uh, one of the the head lawyers for uh, the army. Um, has accused two army staff general officers of lying under oath. Uh, and that's, that's pretty big news. Um, but the fact that, you know, I mean, there's just so many pieces of big news, uh, that, you know, again, it's hard to really fault anyone for that. But again, that's, you know, another kind of a, a timeline story where I, I think that, um, you know, you probably will learn something, uh, listening to this podcast anyway, uh, where I read the Matthews memo. So you don't have to, although again, I encourage you to, to read it. Uh, even if you don't read the entire DOD OIG report, uh, I give it a grad school read. But, uh, you know, the, the Matthews memo itself is very much digestible. Uh, second topic I, I t uh, said that I was going to do would be to do case studies of defendants, of participants in the Capitol insurrection. And at this point, I've done far fewer than I have imagined I would at the outset. In fact, I've only done one entire episode dedicated to uh, one defendant. And that was, of course, episode two, Shane Leiden Jenkins. Um, nonetheless, there have been less detailed descriptions of individual defendants in episodes five, eight, 11, 13, and 18, and probably some other episodes that I've missed. So uh, maybe I'll revisit that a little bit. Um, particularly if and when uh, interesting new arrests are, are made. 
Um, although we're kind of at the point now where, you know, sort of a lot of these individual, um, you know, mob defendants, right? The people, uh, the AFO people, um, you know, they're not as interesting, I think, in, in some sense, as we move closer to the center of the whiteboard. Um, now, we're also at this point where just keeping up with court proceedings adequately is about to become much more difficult if the coronavirus actually ever permits any juries to be impaneled. Skipping around a little bit, um, there was the issue of the impunity of white mobs, one of the themes I promised to do. Uh, I planned to do that from the outset, and that became episode six, the impunity of white mobs. White privilege has been something of a running theme for many of these defendants, especially since any number of them have been looking for changes of venue, right? Making, you know, coded references to why DC is, is a bad place for them to be tried. And I'm very grateful that all of these venue requests have been denied. And, um, you know, again, the, the principle is that crimes should be tried in the places where they're committed. That's in Article 3 of the Constitution. So, um, yeah. Now, one theme I, I haven't actually addressed all that much um, is the problem of political violence found in a society, found on revolution. That was actually like item number 12, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get to that. Um, you do see, you know, it, for example, the Liberty Tree, right? Uh, you know, as, as an item that they were carried, you know, which is rel relic of the Revolutionary War. Uh, you have John Locke, um, you know, who famously uses this, this veiled language to, uh, you know, talk about how uh, violence, you know, uh, the, the appeal to heaven is the language that, that Locke uses in the second treatise. Uh, to talk about, you know, that sometimes it's necessary to, to engage in violent revolution. And yet, you know, this puts us in a bit of a quandary, right? You know, you've got a government, uh, and yet it's founded in revolution, and yet the government itself probably would prohibit, you know, any kind of, of revolution or political violence, as it should, right? I mean, that's the definitional, definitional to government, is a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, but that, you know, I, I've looked back and some of my political theory themed episodes have been some of the less popular episodes. So I don't know if going forward out of the luxury of a slow news month, right? That's when I've tended to do those has been when there's been uh, less news. Um, I don't know that that's going to happen for the foreseeable future. So uh, that may be just a writing project for me more than something I do on the podcast. And reviewing my notes, one of the things I'm actually very happy to have been wrong about way back in episode one uh, was my skepticism regarding the findings of any potential Blue Ribbon Commission to look into January 6th. I was, at the outset, very skeptical about the prospects for the success of such a commission back in May when I recorded episode one. And um, I think that was somewhat vindicated. What I didn't count on was the fact that Republicans would block a Blue Ribbon Commission uh, authorized by Congress entirely. Now, as many observers have noted, that was dumb on their part. It, it's clear that the Select Committee 
now, in retrospect, was the correct form. Nonetheless, Pelosi and other Democrats had to go through this process where they tried to do it in a bipartisan way, and that didn't work. Uh, if you watch the proceedings of the Oversight and Reform Committee, it was a disaster, in part to, thanks to the presence uh, on that particular committee of such members as Joy, uh, Jordan, Heiss, Biggs, and Clyde. Uh, the majority of the committee did great work, and they produced good work product, but the Sedition Caucus did everything they could to make the hearings an absolute circus. So, you know, we talk about bipartisanship and how it's a great thing, and not always, not always. And, uh, you know, again, they had the opportunity to appoint more Republicans, but Kevin McCarthy decided he was going to throw insurrectionists on the committee, and uh, Nancy Pelosi was having none of that. So I think a lot of people have been unhappy with the perceived lack of transparency and the speed, and, and arguably they wasted, you know, literally months um, trying to uh, find some sort of bipartisan solution before they settled on uh, the select committee uh, as the form of the investigative body. So, um, nonetheless, it's far better than a bipartisan commission. No comparison, right? Yeah, Blue Ribbon Bipartisan Commission, it wouldn't have been uh, really workable. You would have had something like you had with the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, where you had dueling reports, majority reports and minority reports. And uh, they, you know, wound up ultimately, uh, the one take home in the minority report was this kind of disinformation campaign saying that, well, the cause of the financial collapse was actually loans to low income people. Um, interestingly, by the way, if you look at the data, that that's not actually the case. Uh, the, the data show that uh, most of the losses were in high income areas. Uh, the fast-growing areas, that's where the boom occurred, and that's where the property values went up the most. And so, you know, um, it takes a lot of $40,000 houses uh, to, to make up for the, the loss of, you know, to when someone with a million-dollar mortgage winds up just walking away, right? Anyway, so we don't have that problem with the, the select committee. And... It's entirely understandable why some people might be frustrated by the lack of transparency that's necessitated, again, by the possibility of criminal referrals. But I'm reminded now, uh, looking back on it, that it could have been much worse. We could have had Jim Jordan showboating his way through commission hearings, and it wouldn't produce anything like any kind of just result. There would just been, you know, some kind of outcome, like the dueling reports, we saw in the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission being, you know, that, that's what we would have. So overall, uh, like I said, I, I think I've hit most of the, the themes that I, I promised to hit, and I will keep revisiting them as time goes on and uh, perhaps adding new ones. Now I'd like to return to the my outstanding questions. Uh, one of the things I, I thought I'd do is just look back at some of my notes I have like six, seven notebooks full uh, at this point of, of handwritten notes. And, you know, basically I, I take this and I wind up then uh, composing 
on the computer. Um, but I also have like a whole bunch of sort of uh, fits and starts and different little data points. And uh, uh, everybody does that. Uh, you know, I, I wind up doing it um, just by hand, long form, and then uh, transferring things uh, digitally as I write, just because I, you know, I compose better longhand. Anyway, um, I'd like to look at six questions that are kind of, uh, have sort of piqued my interest. And, and these aren't the ones that may be ultimately the most significant. But these are questions that I have, I guess, right now, uh, based on things like new information or uh, previous episodes, right? Some of the nagging kind of unresolved issues that I don't feel ever got addressed or answered adequately, right? Like, you know, for example, like with the Matthews memo, I feel like we, we have a good explanation of that central question of, you know, why didn't the National Guard get de deployed? Well, okay, they got, they didn't get deployed because they were stonewalled by Chris Miller, Ryan McCarthy, Piot, and Charles Flynn. Right, they were they were stonewalled. They're stuck on a phone call. They're stuck on a video conference, and Chris Miller and Ryan McCarthy held themselves incommunicado. That's that's what happened. So some other things, though, um, you know, and that, that's a big question. I think we will finally have a good answer to. There's some other things that that are maybe maybe smaller, but nonetheless, um, there are questions I wound up posing uh, in earlier episodes that still I don't feel like we have answers to, and I'd like to uh, talk about them now, just real quickly, just six questions that I feel like we, we still don't need the answer, have the answers to, and uh, perhaps it would be good if we did. First question is, what happened to the sources in the Reuters article? What was that? Well, you might remember there's an article that was written um, on August 20th, or published August 20th, 2021, from Reuters, by the journalists Mark Hosenball and Sarah Lynch. And you'll probably remember it. It was it made a big splash at the time. Um, and it uh, relied on, quote, four current and former law enforcement officials, quote, sources who have either been directly involved in or briefed regularly on the wide-ranging investigations. And that the, the headline was, you know, FBI finds scant evidence of coordination uh, in the, the January 6th attack, something like that. It's just off the top of my head, but yes, that part about finding scant evidence um, was basically, you know, the headline. And again, the sources were anonymous but current and former law enforcement officials. Doesn't say federal, um, but they were current and former law enforcement officials either directly involved in or briefed regularly on the wide-ranging investigations. Now, the central claim of the article by Hosenball and Lynch, based on these four sources, was that, quote, although federal officials have arrested more than 570 alleged participants the FBI at this point believes the violence was not centrally coordinated by far-right groups or prominent supporters of then-President Donald Trump, end quote. We already had at the time of the publication of this article last August information and evidence that this was simply false, 
that was simply not true. We had definite evidence that there was coordination uh, uh, by far-right groups operating with themselves and also between far-right groups, right? You had, you know, information passing between, for example, um, uh, three percenters and, and, and the Oath Keepers. So that's, that's one thing, right? That's simply just not true. And yet there's never been any revision. And, and the subsequent stuff, right, that we've seen, you know, things like the Eastman memo, you know, again, uh, why hasn't this article been updated in any way? If the sources really were current law enforcement officials, then any comment on their part would be highly inappropriate. But if they were former officials, they would not be in a position to really know, right? They wouldn't be, you know, briefed. So if there's been any retraction, it's, I haven't seen it. Uh, there's never been any retraction or clarification. There has been nothing. And at this point, I would just call, characterize this article as disinformation, full stop. Relying on anonymous sources is not a license to print false and inaccurate information. We know that this story wasn't true. And this matters because this article is still out there and it's still being cited, even though it's disinformation. As skeptical as I am of Reuters, particularly since its acquisition by Thomson in, in 2008, I, I nonetheless think that these reporters wrote the article in good faith, right? But they were lied to by their sources. Nonetheless, there's never been any acknowledgement of the errors contained in this article. And importantly, this article was picked up by Newsmax, which actually hasn't picked up many articles at all from the mainstream press on the subject of January 6th. So it should be strange for such a prominent article that was disseminated far and wide uh, to be proven so demonstrably false. And yet there's never been any retraction or qualification to any, in any kind, any degree with regard to the reporting contained in that article. Second question I have. Who was L. Brent Bozell IV, Zeker Bozell, calling in the Senate and also on his way out of the Capitol? Uh, you'll recall Zeker Bozell, another one of my pet obsessions, someone who probably I think should be bigger news, but kind of just has disappeared, um, you know, from episode five, Grand Old Party Animals. Right. This is someone who is from uh, a very prominent Republican family. This is uh, the nephew of Bill Buckley. Uh, this is someone whose family basically at the MRC, the Media Research Center, uh, you know, two generations of Bozells now have this little kind of uh, media criticism empire where they uh, basically do direct mail fundraising and uh, get money to write snarky stories about how uh, the liberal media is biased. And, you know, this grift has been going going for decades now. Um, but you'll recall Zeker Bozell goes into the Senate. He goes up to the, the cameras. He moves them so that they can't actually record anything and talks on his phone in the well of the Senate for a while, and then leaves the building talking on his phone the whole time. 
So my question still is, it still bothers me. Who was he talking to? And what was he talking with them about? So, yeah. Uh, he actually, again, from a wealthy family, has the opportunity, you know, I'm sure he has excellent legal representation. Uh, we'll see that go to trial. Um, you know, this is someone who went in and performed a very specific task. And uh, that is very suspicious. And, you know, it would be great to know uh, if they've ever gotten a hold of his phone and they can see who he was talking to. All right. Third nagging question, who paid? And again, we, we know some of this information. We know about the, the organizations. But what I'm talking about is who paid to bring the rioters, who, the insurrectionists, to D.C.? Uh, many of these people we now know, um, for example, uh, the, the Texas Patriot Boys, right, um, you know, were relying on donations, to bring them to D.C. You had Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, you know, getting donations. You had people getting donations for gear. Um, and then you have uh, people, you know, flying across country, uh, staying in a hotel for several nights, a, a time when, by the way, hotels were jacking up the prices. And who paid for all of that? Because, you know, yeah, they're the Jenner Ryans, right? Flying in on private jets, they can self-fund. It's no big deal. You know, uh, for many people, though, something like this is going to be like a month's income. And, uh, you know, there are many defendants who are flat broke, right? And if you live in Pennsylvania and you hop on a bus, um, you know, that perhaps is chartered by your local state representative, like Doug Mastriano, well, that's one thing. Um, but if you, you know, are flying across country uh, and you book yourself a hotel room for four days, like Avery McCracken did, right? Uh, guy from Lauren Boebert's district who has 26 criminal convictions since 1995 and lives out of his car and has been depicted, you know, there's a photo going around and I'm doing my best to disseminate it uh, from his Facebook page where, you know, he's standing next to Boebert and he's holding a $100 bill. That implies a, a financial relationship, you know. I mean, I've seen lots of pictures of members of Congress with their constituents. I've never seen one where it appeared that a constituent had received a $100 bill from a member of Congress. So it raised a lot of questions in my mind. And I, I've actually got a little side project going through where I'm going through the, the most violent defendants and I'm examining uh, any anything that appears in the charging documents with regard to funding. But uh, again, it raises questions. There's there are these organized groups, you know, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, but there are also people who are kind of independent, right? Uh, yeah, again, Shane Leedon Jenkins, uh, someone who, you know, has a history of attacking the police. Were, was anyone recruiting violent men uh, and saying, hey, we know you love Trump. You know, you've had some problems with the law. We think you'd be great up in the front lines. Uh, we want you to attack uh, police. Uh, so who, if anyone, paid to bring people like that? So we are assured that they will follow the money. I'm sure that they are working on this angle. And, you know, um, Merrick Garland has promised us that there are 
investigative techniques that, you know, even prosecutors um, who, you know, left the Justice Department some time ago might not be familiar with. I'm sure they are looking at the hotel records. Um, But, you know, we had Dustin Stockton showing up at the January 6th committee, you know, after he got the subpoena that he asked for. He was voluntarily cooperating um, with this thick binder, you know. I would love to know what's in that because that's one of the things that someone like him, a political organizer, does, right? These are the guys with the buses. These are the guys who, you know, basically will make hotel arrangements for travel accommodations for, uh, you know, various kinds of activists and various kinds of organizing activities. And, you know, that is going to be fascinating. But it would be interesting to see who paid to bring uh, some of these people who were not self-funding, who do not have the means to just arbitrarily in the middle of the week go to Washington, D.C. and engage in political violence with the police. All right, fourth question. And this one, I'm lumping them together. This question is basically a compilation of all of Colonel Matthews' questions, particularly with regard to the whereabouts and the actual activities of Charles Flynn, Walter Piott, Ryan McCarthy, and Chris Miller. Um, the episode was literally the last episode, so I, I don't feel like it's necessary to, to, you know, beat this dead horse. Nonetheless, Matthews points out that the whole point of Ryan McCarthy's absence was supposedly to develop a plan, but no one in the D.C. National Guard has ever seen the plan. Uh, Ryan McCarthy ought to produce that plan. Charles Flynn supposedly has staff of 40 people working on this deployment plan. No one has ever seen any of that uh, and more, right? Matt, Colonel Matthews asked questions about what kind of operation they're, they're running at the DOD OIG. Um, so they're great questions. We don't have a lot of answers to them. Um, and that would be number four on the list. Number five. This is a quick one. I'm willing to talk about it too much. But the identity of the pipe bomber who left bombs at the DNC and the RNC. Uh, Everyone's curious about that. I don't have to explain too much why. This was clearly a planned diversion. uh, And, you know, somebody planned these bombs. And, you know, it's an effort to bring police away from the Capitol. So... You know, who's a strange-footed little troll person uh, with the bag running around D.C. Uh, on January 5th planning these pipe bombs? We have no idea. We, we know what kind of shoes they're wearing. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're rather uh, they're a short little person. You know, I mean, you can just tell. But we, we don't know who this person is. Um, and... You know, we don't know if there's been any progress on that. And, of course, the, the people want to know. Right, right, maybe not the people. I certainly want to know. Sixth question. Which of the committee witnesses will be charged first? Now, I'm not talking about criminal contempt, right? Or rather, contempt of Congress. Um, criminal referrals have been made. Um, I'm talking about uh, criminal referrals stemming from the insurrection itself rather than the cover-up. So cooperation has to include a stick. Um, and they're, they're probably going to have to make a referral on someone at some point. In Trump world, 
one thing you should know, you know, is that like the more you look, the dirtier things get, the more you scratch the surface, the more you understand that criminality pervades everything uh, that is associated with the Trump administration, with the Trumps personally, and certainly with January 6th is no exception to that. So a case like this isn't going to be as easy as assaulting a federal officer or a parading charge, right? There's not going to be video evidence in most instances. But some of these people, you know, uh, probably could already face criminal charges. Uh, and the, the example I would cite is someone like Cohen, right? Cohen wasn't target of, uh, you know, the investigation into Trump. But, you know, that was who they wound up targeting and flipping, and he was useful to the government, even though ultimately uh, nothing came of that. You know, he winds up cooperating and being the only person uh, who actually pays any penalty in the, the uh, Stormy Daniels matter. So um, time is fast approaching, already passed probably, uh, to make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice stemming from the insurrection. The committee has just recently reiterated their willingness to make criminal referrals. And so I think part of the reason why may be that they've already gathered enough evidence to do so in at least one case. I could be wrong, but I'd be very interested to see, you know, uh, if they have covered criminal in information that is already uh, strong enough for them to make criminal referrals. And I'd be curious to know uh, about who that is. And, you know, what are they going to try to do with that? Well, obviously, they would try to do what they did to Cohen. Um, and they've already got, you know, they've got lots of cooperators. They've got people who are uh, kicking and screaming. They've got outright refusals like Bannon. But, you know, it, there there's going to be some people... Uh, who are going to go through some things. And I'm interested to know uh, which of those people is going to go first. All right, so those are my questions. Now I'd like to turn to the favorite question of Trumpist trolls everywhere. How come you call it sedition when no one's been charged with sedition? And the corollary question, how can you call it an insurrection when no one's been charged with insurrection? Well, as I mentioned in passing in the introduction, this is something to which I knew the answer from the very beginning. It's because both insurrection and sedition have been consigned to what I call the dead letter drawer of U.S. jurisprudence for reasons I'll get to in a moment. What I won't be talking about here is why prosecutors have relied on obstruction of an official proceeding, 18 U.S. Code, Section 1512, in part because I've talked about it before. I'll refer you to Marcy Wheeler's treatment of the topic on EmptyWheel.net, particularly her page on, quote, how a Trump prosecution for January 6th would work from August 19th, which I've also talked about in the aforementioned episode 13. The relevant part here is that this is an overt act and doesn't rely on whether or not the defendants have an intention to overthrow the government. As we'll see, uh, the courts have had an issue with this issue of intention, of showing intent. And so the focus over time has been to focus on overt acts. Now, the question of why sedition hasn't been charged just keeps coming up 
it, people who ask it are usually doing so in bad faith. Uh, nonetheless, the answer that I'm, I'm going to give is very little referenced. Even the rather excellent article by uh, Joshua Braver, I also cited in episode 13, really doesn't focus on the classic cases I'm going to focus on here, preferring more recent cases that, while probably more relevant to the state of the law today, obviously figure less significantly in the historiography of the history of sedition in the 20th century. On Monday, there was a very good segment on, uh, on point from NPR that addressed this very issue. And yet, even there, uh, this line of cases I'm going to talk about wasn't even cited by, you know, guests who probably know better uh, about these things than I do. So it's precisely this admission by, oh, and I don't want to single them out, uh, a lot of people who are covering this, that, that seems very strange because it lies at the intersection of all the fields that are most significantly involved in the study of January 6th. This is a question that is of interest to uh, professionals who study law, political science, and journalism. So that's part of why it's so weird. Journalism today is very much professionalized, and many journalists are products of journalism schools, where, I assume, even if they don't study much in the way of the law or history, they might have some passing familiarity with the cases I'm going to talk about today. It could be that people just assume that well-educated laypersons already know all this. Maybe. Uh, or maybe it's just that people are afraid of getting the details wrong or something. I don't know. Uh, these opinions I'm going to talk about uh, are an important part of the story that advocates of civil liberties like to tell about the development of First Amendment jurisprudence on the modern Supreme Court. It's a story that begins in the early 20th century, when sedition was used as a tool not to protect the political system so much as to punish unpopular speech that powerful interests and parties saw as somehow dangerous. And it ends with a long series of uh, pro-First Amendment dissents, concurrences, and eventually majority opinions. So in other words, the consignment of sedition to the dead-letter drawer of U.S. jurisprudence has everything to do with a Supreme Court that became, over time, much more committed to free speech, right? There's an inherent trade-off between prosecuting people for seditious speech and free speech itself. So even though sedition is technically still on the books, it's not a charge that's abroad anymore because the Supreme Court has decided that they should, you know, in the balance, free speech outweighs, again, you know, free speech, right? That's that's in the First Amendment. That's in the Constitution. Um, and so, you know, it has a higher priority than uh, protecting uh, the, you know, even the state itself from seditious speech or even seditious conspiracy. So I'm about to get into the weeds here. Uh, for the rest of this entire uh, special January 6th, first anniversary edition. Um, but the too long didn't read, the TLDR version is, if someone asks you why sedition and insurrection charges haven't been brought, you can tell them that it's because the Supreme Court has decided to protect free speech 
by very strongly limiting the government's ability to win in cases where sedition or insurrection are charged. This has been accomplished in several ways, but the most important part to know is that sedition and insurrection involve intent to overthrow the government. But the practice today is to charge the overt acts, rather than focusing on the intent to overthrow the, the government. So again, what do we see? Obstruction of, a, of an official proceeding. That's an overt act. What, without regard to the intent. So there might be sedition. There might be a seditious conspiracy. Those are still in the books. We don't charge that anymore. We prefer to charge the overt acts. The government prefers to charge the overt acts um, because there are a variety of legal and even, you know, the danger of authoritarianism from regularizing the use of sedition charges to punish uh, unpopular speech. The cases I'm going to focus on today range from 1919 to 1957. So in the literature, these are usually treated as free speech cases rather than cases concerning sedition, even though, of course, they do, right? The ultimate case in this series I've chosen is an arbitrary endpoint is Yates v. U.S. 1957, which is still regarded as one of the most important decisions of the Warren Court. Now, ultimately, this culminates in Brandenburg 1969. Um, I'm not going to get to that uh, because I think that, you know, we can get to where we're going just through Yates. Um, but over the course of time, as we see, we'll see the court becomes less favorable to the idea that anti-sedition laws can be legitimate at all, as the court adopts a normative stance that enforcement of statutes against sedition is incompatible with free speech, and that these are, in fact, potentially tyrannical laws. So we begin with Schenck v. U.S., a 1919 Supreme Court decision that lands squarely in favor of the constitutionality of laws against sedition in the face of First Amendment concerns. Two socialists were convicted of distributing leaflets, encouraging men to resist conscription and also to become socialists. The pamphlet itself was worded in such a way as to make it seem to be very much in agreement with the American way of life, as it would have been understood by a popular audience at the time. And the pamphlet that they were charged for uh, argued that the 13th Amendment banned conscription as a form of involuntary servitude, and it ends with the following appeal. Help us wipe out this stain upon the Constitution. Help us reestablish democracy in America. Remember, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Down with autocracy. Long live the Constitution of the United States. Long live the Republic. The Supreme Court really just wasn't buying it. And they didn't want any pesky socialists stirring up opposition to the draft by cleverly worded appeals to the 13th Amendment or any other part of the Constitution. It was a unanimous decision, and the opinion of the court was assigned to Oliver Wendell Holmes. And this is where we get the famous Turner phrase about shouting fire in a crowded theater. 
And so here I'm going to quote at length from Holmes's majority opinion in Schenck v. U.S., uh, which I will be doing in, in a variety of these cases. So, quote, We admit that in many places and in ordinary times, the defendants in saying all that was said in the circular would have been within their constitutional rights. But the character of every act depends upon the circumstances in which it is done. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. It does not even protect a man from an injunction against uttering words that may have all the effect of force. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. When a nation is at war, many things that might be said in time of peace are such a hindrance to its effort that their utterance will not be endured so long as men fight, and that no court could regard them as protected by any constitutional right. I mean, wow, right? So much for the First Amendment, um, you know, which seems pretty clear and unambiguous. Uh, so, you know, but nonetheless, that's where most accounts tend to focus in these early, this early series of cases. Now, curiously, while this case has the best turn of phrase, I don't actually think it's the most important case in terms of the politics of the day. That case is Debs v. U.S., which is also decided in 1919. To me, this case stands out for a couple of reasons. The first is the prominence of Debs himself in the politics of his era. Debs had, by this point, been nominated for president four times by the Socialist Party of America, winning six million votes in the 1912 presidential election. The case against him was nothing other than sheer, unmitigated, contrived bullshit. It was fucking bullshit. It was garbage. The Espionage Act had outlawed resistance to conscription and efforts to decrease war production. But Debs' speech in Canton, Ohio, for which he was convicted, was rather carefully worded. It didn't do those things. It didn't overtly get, you know, ask for people to resist conscription. It didn't ask for people to slow down war protection. It didn't do those things. I'll post a link to the text of his speech in the show notes. Um, but Debs didn't violate the letter of the law. He was plainly using his First Amendment rights as the leader of a national political party. So here's the most anti-war section of uh, Eugene Debs' speech in Canton, Ohio. Excuse me, I have a, have a little bit of a tickle in my throat. Um, uh, hey, Bernie, Bernie, um, you know the Debs speech, Eugene Debs' speech in Canton, Ohio? Yeah, I'm... 
I'm having some problems here. Uh, would you mind, I know you have the entire thing committed to memory. Uh, would you mind terribly reading Eugene Debs' speech? Now, just, just the section that really got him into the most trouble. Could, could you just read it for my podcast? Yeah, no, I mean, just for memory. Well, here, I mean, look, just a highlighted section. You got this. In the Middle Ages, the feudal lords and barons, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor, ignorant serfs had been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon each other and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And that is war in a nutshell. It hasn't changed. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose. While the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. The ruling class has always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. And here let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. Right. Thanks so much, Senator Sanders. Yeah, you did an excellent job there. I, I really appreciate it. Um, okay, actually, I was looking for just a recording of Eugene Debs' voice. Like, any recording to just, you know, get a sample of Eugene Debs' voice. And I found this 1979 audio documentary that was produced by Bernie Sanders um, back when he was working with uh, this Vermont history, uh, workers' history group. Um, and, you know, this was just, it's just too good, right? I mean... I, I actually don't even know if there actually are recorded samples of Eugene, Eugene Debs' voice, but, um, you know, this is, I mean, perfect, because he was actually looking, he actually, I was going to read that, um, focused on the very uh, section that got Debs into trouble and was the very section that I was going to read out myself. Um, but, you know, I, I find myself in this odd position where I'm doing this little audio project, you know, and it winds up touching on Eugene Debs. And, of course, you know, like Bernie Sanders winds up doing it back in 1979 on, like, some uh, cassette tapes that wind up getting passed around from hand to hand by members of the Socialist Workers' Party. So, um, 
<laughs> it's, it's kind of a cool historical artifact, and I, I, I for the life of me, uh, don't understand why this didn't wind up getting wider circulation uh, in, let's say, I don't know, the uh, 2016 primary campaign Bernie would have won. Um, but, yeah. I mean, I guess the main thing you need to know is that I didn't plan this whole episode around the Bernie Sanders clip. and Instead, I found it while I was preparing this I probably subconsciously at some point knew that Bernie had done this uh, and was aware of it on some level, uh, you know, maybe subconscious or, you know, half forgotten. But I was extremely pleased to find it. If you look for it, you look for Bernie Sanders and Eugene Debs, you can find it on YouTube. It's 29 minutes long. Um, it's not great. I mean, you know, the audio quality is probably about the same as is uh, on my podcast, right? Um, I actually record this podcast on an actual potato. Um, and I, I suspect that uh, the audio conditions in 1979 uh, in Burlington were something similar. All right. So, you know. All kidding aside, that's Debs's speech. That's the section that, that actually winds up getting him in trouble with the federal government. And in my opinion, Debs didn't actually violate the Espionage Act in any way. His language was very careful. His goal was to draw attention to the class character of international conflict and in the international capitalist system. He was speaking out against the fact that it's always, um, to use a phrase from the Civil War, a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. He didn't call for any specific action to either slow down war production or resist the draft. Nonetheless, the federal government arrested him, tried him, and gave him 10 years almost as if that was their plan all along. And the actual content of his speech didn't matter, almost as if they had crafted a law that was intended to target socialists who were opposed to the war from the very beginning. So, the story that the legal profession and constitutional scholars like to tell about the conflict between laws but against sedition and free speech, desperately wants to pretend that this case didn't happen. But it did, right? So this is the difference between liberals and the actual goddamn left. This admission is simply indefensible. In the speech that sent him to jail, Debs didn't call for any specific form of resistance to the war. But nonetheless, he was arrested, tried, and convicted, receiving a 10-year sentence to the federal penitentiary to, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, oddly enough, my own grandfather uh, served 18 months in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia, like a decade later, for moonshining. Um, he would... Uh, make moonshine from uh, sugar cane and uh, transport it. And anyway, 
Um, but he wound up becoming a church deacon and, um, you know, did, didn't, didn't wind up uh, doing that uh, for the rest of his life. Uh, wound up ultimately becoming uh, a worker at the county dump um, and also a, a deacon of his church, uh, a which was a, uh, a Methodist church uh, in Richland County, South Carolina. In any event, Debs' crime uh, wasn't really to subvert the war effort in any meaningful way. His crime was to endorse socialism and to endorse the class struggle, pure and simple. So um, this is where I'm differing from the standard narrative, right? The standard narrative is to make Holmes the hero of this story. Uh, you know, he comes out in, the, in, in Shank uh, and these three other cases, which they usually quickly just kind of admit, um, you know. Uh, and in my, my mind, the case against Debs is more important, in fact, than the case against Shank. Um, De for me, he's not the protagonist. Debs is the protagonist. Debs's appeal to the Supreme Court was heard just a week after the decision in the Schenck case. And the court denied his appeal, and Holmes wrote the opinion of the court. And this is, by the standards of today, a remarkably short decision. But, I mean, that, that applies to, like, you know, if you look at Supreme Court decisions over time, the, the tendency is for, um, because this, the court sets its own docket, over time, the Supreme Court hears fewer cases, but crafts longer decisions. So over time, what the court does, um, rather than adjudicating cases, is to craft law. In, in any event, Holmes basically summarizes a section of the speech in his opinion, uh, where... That you know that section that was read by Senator Sanders uh, in the audio clip. It's it's that that whole section is more or less not verbatim, but um, kind of paraphrased by Holmes in his decision. And Debs's appeal uh, was based on jury instructions that permitted jurors to consider uh, something called an anti-war proclamation and program that Debs had endorsed in his Canton speech. Now, this is a program that was passed by the Socialist Party of America in, uh, I believe, St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Missouri. Um, and, you know, this is something that he'd endorsed. Debs you know, basically gave a thumbs up in his Canton speech, said, yeah, I support this. Um, but it wasn't actually referenced directly. You know, just said, look at, look to this document. And, you know, I mean, it's very, like, if you want to look at incitement, it's just very oblique. So, quote, 
Its first recommendation was continuous, active, and public opposition to the war through demonstrations, mass petitions, and all other means within our power. Again, this is quoting from uh, Holmes's decision. Evidence that the defendant accepted this view and this declaration of his duties uh, at the time that he made his speech is evidence that if in that speech he used words tending to obstruct the recruiting service, he meant that they should have that effect. The principle is too well established and too manifestly good since to need citation of the books. Okay. We should add that the jury were most carefully instructed that they could not find the defendant guilty for advocacy of any of his opinions unless the words used had as their natural tendency and reasonably probable effect to obstruct the recruiting service, etc., and unless the defendant had the specific intent to do this in his mind. Without going into further particulars, we are of the opinion that the verdict on the fourth count for obstructing and attempting to obstruct the recruiting service of the United States must be sustained, end quote. All right, so that's, again, Holmes's decision, Holmes's opinion in the decision against Debs. Now, it, it just, you read this, it's just like, it, wow, right? Um, I, I almost don't even know where, where to begin. Uh, in, in parsing uh, the fallacies that Holmes commits in his condemnation of uh, Eugene Debs here. Um, but, you know, this, this idea of this natural tendency and reasonably probable effect, that's so goddamn vague. Right? I mean, compare that to the shouting fire in a crowded theater standard that was established in Schenck. This natural tendency. Wait, wait. So basically you're saying anything, anything against the war, anything against inscription, right? And again, there's a reason why this, you know, again, that's why I'm giving this to you. Most of the stories of this just leaves this decision out, right? You know, Holmes makes this crowded theater argument in Schenck, and then you skip ahead uh, to a series of dissents. In the Debs case, which arguably, in my mind, is far more important, he's saying, well, he may have legally complied with the letter of the law, but... You know, the natural tendency and the probable effect is blah, blah, blah. Well, fuck you, Oliver Wendell Holmes. You are a goddamn jackass. So, Debs' conviction was made possible and sustained by the court uh, on the basis of speech that 
he didn't actually publicly utter. And he wasn't even convicted on that basis. He was convicted on the basis of the, quote, natural tendency and reasonably probable effect, quote, of that speech. So this is actually much worse than the standard that supposedly uh, prevails in Schenck. Here, even where we have the express content of the speech that seems to be permissible under even the most draconian standards of the Espionage Act, the jury is permitted to convict on the basis of inferences. And not even certainties, but rather probabilities. It's such an obscenely low bar. Uh, and to me, it's amazing that this fact isn't discussed more in the literature. No one ever mentions the fact that, you know, they really just lower the bar here just to, you know, specifically tailored to this defendant to target Debs. This isn't crowding, you know, this isn't shouting cry fire in a crowded theater. It's expressing mere approval for a written document that had been published months earlier without express reference to the contents. And even that document doesn't actually call for any real draft avoidance. It only does this, quote, unyielding opposition to all proposed legislation for military or industrial conscription. Should such conscription be forced upon the people, we pledge ourselves to continuous efforts for the repeal of such laws and to the support of all mass movements in opposition to conscription, end quote. It doesn't call for resistance to conscription, only, you know, like, let's say, draft avoidance, right? It doesn't call for, like, you know, people going to Canada. It calls for a campaign to change conscription law, which is clearly protected political speech. And nowhere does even this proclamation of the Socialist Party call for insubordination by serving members of the armed forces. So ultimately, Eugene Debs would serve two years at USP Atlanta. And while there in 1920, Debs ran for president for the fifth and final time. And he earned a million votes nationwide. Debs would wind up being granted clemency by Warren G. Harding in December of 1921, which is a final perverse detail, given the fact that Harding himself was the second most criminal president in U.S. history. And when I've thought about this, you know, in introduction to U.S. politics lectures, I've always said, you know, bar none, Warren G. Harding, the most criminal president in American history, he will never be. Uh, superseded in any way. And I was so fucking wrong, right? Warren G. Harding is clearly, like, you know, I mean, Nixon, not as bad as Harding. Harding is clearly now the second most criminal president in American history. Later in 1919, there is another case. 
this time involving Jacob Frovac, a writer for a German-language newspaper, the Missouri Staatszeitung, who had written a series of editorials opposing the First World War. Again, Holmes writes the opinion, and again, the court and Holmes conclude that this is all fine. So, we have an application of this sedition statute to political activists, former presidential nominees, and now a journalist. Even later in 1919, we have Abrams v. The United States, a decision against five defendants who were Russian nationals and ideologically motivated left-wing revolutionaries, self-described rebels, who opposed U.S. intervention on behalf of the white Russians and against the Reds in the ongoing Russian Civil War. This they accomplished by means of printing flyers in English and Yiddish. For this, these five, originally six, but one was acquitted, were convicted under the Espionage Act of 1917, which included amendments prohibiting speech that might urge workers to decrease war production. The Supreme Court would uphold these convictions 7-2. to two. It's at this point that Holmes begins to turn away from application of the Espionage Act to anti-war activists. He dissents and is joined by Justice Brandeis in this dissent. Quote, No argument seems to be necessary to show that these pronunciamentatos in no way attack the form of government in the United States, or that they do not support either the first two counts. What little I have to say about the third count may be postponed until I have considered the fourth. With regard to that, it seems too plain to be denied that the suggestion to workers in the ammunition factories that they are producing bullets to murder their dearest, and the further advocacy of a general strike, both in the second leaflet, do urge curtailment of production of things necessary to the prosecution of the war within the meaning of the Act of May 16, 1918. But to make the conduct criminal, that statute requires that it should be, quote, with intent by such curtailment to cripple or hinder the United States in the prosecution of the war, end quote. It seems to me that no such intent is proved. This is a remarkable departure from the line of reasoning in the Debs decision which had been issued only months before. With Debs, Holmes found it legally actionable that speech should probably subvert war production, conscription, and discipline in the military. Here, there's actually a fairly direct call to subvert the production of war material, in this case, bullets. But because the government isn't able to prove intent, according to Holmes, it's different. In the Debs case, Holmes seems to care not at all for whether the government has de demonstrated intent at all. And this wasn't simply because Debs, the Debs decision 
was limited to a rather narrow question of jury instructions because Holmes didn't himself limit, in his opinion, to that narrow question at all. Uh, But suddenly, here he is, dissenting from the opinion of the court, claiming that the government must show intent under the same law that, in the Debs case, he didn't even consider the question of consent. So, I think he's being inconsistent, and he knows it. But Supreme Court justices aren't allowed to be inconsistent, so this is how he wriggles out of it. Quote, I have never seen any reason to doubt that the questions of law that alone were before this court in the cases of Schenck, Froverk, and Debs were rightly decided. I do not doubt for a moment that by the same reasoning that would justify punishing persuasion to murder, the United States constitutionally may punish speech that produces or is intended to produce a clear and imminent danger that it will bring about forthwith certain substantive evils that the United States constitutionally may seek to prevent. The power undoubtedly is greater in time of war than in time of peace, because war opens dangers that do not exist at other times. But as dangers peculiar to war as against others, the principle of the right to free speech is always the same. It is only the present danger of immediate evil or an intent to bring uh, it about that warrants Congress in setting a limit to the expression of opinion where private rights are not concerned. Congress certainly cannot forbid all effort to change in the mind of the country. Now, nobody can suppose that the surreptitious publishing of a silly leaflet by an unknown man without more would prevent any would present any immediate danger that its opinions would hinder the success of the government arms or have any appreciable tendency to do so. Publishing those opinions for the very purpose of obstructing, however, might indicate a greater danger and at any rate would have the quality of an attempt. So I assume that the second leaflet, if published for the purposes alleged in the fourth count, might be punishable. But it seems pretty clear to me that nothing less than that would bring these papers within the scope of this law. End quote. I get the question of intent here, but it's really strange. He seems to be suggesting that a, quote, silly leaflet by an unknown man, end quote, is somehow less dangerous and therefore less of a problem according to the standard that he, writing for the court, established in Schenck, i.e., it's not shouting in a crowded theater somehow if the author isn't credible. So now it's almost as if free speech is protected, but only for the little people. That's not a fluke. Later in the dissent, he actually calls the defendants, quote, poor and puny anonymities. End quote. So, Holmes spends a lot of time about the lack of demonstrable intent, but I think it's also about who the defendants are. And that's actually crazy. 
what he's basically saying that is if you want to engage in seditious speech, you better buy a printing press and operate it in private and don't sign your name to anything you print. Holmes is a gifted writer, no doubt, but he's just making it up as he goes along. Eugene Debs? He's threatening and scary. Uphold his sentence. These, you know, nobodies? Well, they're, they're not threatening. I mean, it's crazy. Like, you know, basically, um, constitutional principles shouldn't depend upon who the defendant is. And yet, that's what Holmes appears to be arguing here. In my opinion, and uh, yeah, also in much of the secondary literature as well, Holmes is on much firmer footing later in the descent when he writes this, quote, But when men have realized that time may has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe even more than they believe that the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. That, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. It is an experiment as all life is an experiment. Every year, if we do not daily, every day, have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy based upon imperfect knowledge, while that experiment is part of our system, I think that we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death, unless we, they so eminently threaten immediate interference with the lawful and pressing purposes of the law that an immediate check is required to save the country. I wholly disagree with the argument of the government that the First Amendment left the common law as to, as to seditious libel in force. So, again, common law, seditious libel, he's arguing that the First Amendment says, no, seditious libel under the common law doesn't exist. So, this is the basic marketplace of ideas, liberal argument, that you find in the writing of John Stuart Mill in his 1959 book, On Liberty. This is, in fact, the first time that this argument gets used in a Supreme Court argument, which is opinion, uh, which is probably why this dissent is so well remembered. This is what winds up becoming important for the development of the subsequent opinions that I'm going to consider here later. Not this silly idea that free speech depends upon your opinion of whether or not the author is sufficiently silly or obscure. Now here, this, this shows the power of political philosophy. If, as, as a political theorist, I can stand on the soapbox for a moment. Holmes isn't appealing to the wisdom of the founders. He's borrowing an argument for free speech that wasn't really available to the founders because it hadn't been created yet. He's using John Stuart Mill. And according to Mill, quote, 
the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others, end quote. So it seems like this is very much consistent with the test established in Schenck. For Mill, free speech is good insofar as it is useful, as one might expect of someone who's regarded as the most famous utilitarian. Holmes nods to this utilitarianism when he further writes, quote, only the emergency that makes it immediately dangerous to leave the correction of evil counsels to time warrants making any exception to this sweeping command, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, end quote. We're all poor in the million conception in his uh, sweeping command uh, that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Uh, so again, you know, in this marketplace of ideas conception, um, we're all poor, right? If you have this, you know, sedition carve out uh, exception for freedom of speech. Now, Mill himself would have been far less comfortable with any kind of sedition law than Holmes clearly is. Like, if you look at his decision, his opinion, in shrink. But his deciding to introduce this million free speech as a value in First Amendment issues is actually a major advance for the protection of free speech in U.S. jurisprudence, and is one that's going to wind up becoming pivotal, as we'll see in the later series of cases. Jumping ahead to Gitlow v. New York, once again, we had the Supreme Court ruling against sedition defendants, and once again, we have Holmes writing a dissent with which Brandeis joins. Here we have yet another socialist defendant, this time charged under a state anti-sedition law for writing revolutionary pamphlets. The majority opinion actually rules against the defendant, but in so doing establishes the idea that the 14th Amendment means that the Bill of Rights pertains not just to the federal government, but also to states, which is enormously significant but also not really relevant here. Quote, If the publication of this document had been laid as an attempt to induce an uprising against government at once and not some indefinite time in the future, it would have presented a different question. The object would have been one with which the law might deal, subject to the doubt whether there was any danger that the publication could produce any result. Or in other words, whether or not it was futile and too remote from possible consequences. End quote. So, unlike some of the other cases, this case really is sedition. Um, Holmes writes that whether, whatever the intent, this, the writings uh, authored by Gitlow didn't actually cause a proletarian revolution. Gitlow himself actually winds up being pardoned by Governor Al Smith in December 
1925. So jumping ahead to 1927, we have Brandeis getting in on the action, writing a concurrence in yet another sedition case against the leftist. This time, uh, Anita Whitley. Whitney, sorry. The author, the daughter of a prominent California family who helped to found the Communist Labor Party of America, which is a predecessor of the uh, Communist Party of the United States of America, um, hereafter abbreviated to CPUSA. Brandeis basically steals John Stuart Mill's basic argument for free speech in, in clearer form, by the way, than Holmes had done. And incredibly, he actually retcons this argument into the mouths of the founders. And this is particularly true of the claims he makes about the strength of truth against, quote, obnoxious doctrine, which is far more typical of what you might find in John Stuart Mill than, again, in any of the founders. So uh, Brandeis is, you know, taking some liberties with intellectual history. Quote, those who won our independence believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that, in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an ends and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. That without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile. That with them, Discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine. That the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people. That public discussion is a political duty. And that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. End quote. So that is a million argument for free speech. And Whitney would ultimately be granted a pardon by California Governor C.C. Young in 1927. But again, uh, it's another in a long series of dissents that ultimately wind up prevailing as the opinion of the court. So let's jump ahead again to Dennis v. U.S., a 1951 case that involves, you guessed it, communists. The government charged 11 leaders of the Communist Party of the United States with violating the Smith Act, which is a 1940 law that required the registration of foreign nationals and, most importantly here, criminalized, quote, subversive activities. Incredibly, the government won at the district court level, not by asserting that the defendants were plotting to overthrow the government, but rather that, as Marxists, they must inherently believe in the overthrow of the government. And they, they cite sources like, you know, the Communist Manifesto, which is written in 1848, as, you know, well, these are communists, they believe in the Communist Manifesto, you know, therefore, like, 
the stuff that was written in Europe in, in 1848, you know, it applies here, right? So um, the defendants in this case got five years, and the Supreme Court upheld the conviction six two. Now, we've moved on to a different hero at this point, uh, a man who was nominated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to replace Justice Brandeis, and that is Justice William Douglas, who writes a dissent in Dennis v. U.S. Quote, The vice of treating speech as the equivalent of overt acts of a treasonable or seditious character is emphasized by a concurring opinion, which by invoking the law of conspiracy makes speech due service for deeds which are dangerous to society. The doctrine of conspiracy has served diverse and oppressive purposes and in its broad reach can be made to do great evil. But never until today has anyone seriously thought that the ancient law of conspiracy could constitutionally be used to turn speech into seditious conduct. Yet that is precisely what is suggested. I repeat that we deal here with speech alone, not with speech plus acts of sabotage or unlawful conduct. Not a single seditious act is charged in the indictment. To make a lawful speech unlawful because two men conceive it to raise the law of conspiracy to appalling proportions. So, to make a lawful speech unlawful because two men conceive it is to raise the law of conspiracy to appalling proportions. End quote. So, this is in dissent, but here the idea emerges that overt actions are what is punishable, not speech. You can say seditious things, but so long as no actual sedition results, it's no harm, no foul. So that brings us up to the final case in our series, Yates v. U.S., 1957, with the defendants being, once again, you guessed it, more communist. 14 California members of the CPUSA, in this case, to be precise. Earl Warren is now the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and you've got some real Supreme Court legends on the court at this point. Uh, Douglas, Frankfurter, and Black. And this time, the court rules 6-1 to one in favor of the defendants. Finally, this is where the distinction between mere advocacy of seditious ideas and actual overt acts that gets codified by the court. In an opinion that's joined by Douglas, part dissent and part concurrence, Justice Black wrote, quote, I would reverse every one of these convictions and direct that all defendants be acquitted. In my judgment, the statutory provisions on which these prosecutions are based abridge freedom of speech, press, and assembly in violation of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Quote, 
the same reasons that make proof of overt acts so important treason cases apply here. The only overt act which is now charged against these defendants is that they went to a constitutionally protected public assembly where they took part in lawful discussion of public questions and where neither they nor anyone else advocated nor suggested overthrow the United States government. Many years ago, this court said that the very idea of a government, Republican in form, implies a right on the part of its citizens to meet peaceably for consultation in respect to public affairs and to petition for a redress of grievances. U.S. v. Cruikshank. And see DeLong v. Oregon. In my judgment, defendants' attendance at these public meetings cannot be viewed as an overt act to effectuate the object of the conspiracy charged. So, in essence, the petitioners were tried upon the charge that they believe in and want to foist upon this country a different, and to us, a despicable form of authoritarian government in which voices criticizing the existing order are summarily silenced. I fear that the present type of prosecutions are more in line with the philosophy of authoritarian government than with that expressed by our First Amendment. So, that's why we don't actually charge people with sedition anymore. These charges are usually leveled against unpopular defendants, not on the basis of overt acts, but rather on the basis of a of holding unpopular beliefs. And the fact that these charges are most commonly used to stifle dissent rather than against groups that actually pose a danger to democracy is a real concern, as Black notes in, in his uh, opinion of the court, um, that, you know, there's a trade-off here. So... Over time, and this leads ultimately to Brandeis in 19, sorry, Brandeis, Brandenburg in 1969, uh, the court ultimately winds up saying, you know what, uh, charge the overt acts. Uh, if someone's actually trying to overthrow the government, their acts of violence or, or let's say obstruction of an official proceeding, charge that. But the speech itself, you know, uh, don't bring those kind of cases anymore. And that's what happens, right? Um, the regularization of the use of sedition as a charge from the Department of Justice does inherently pose an authoritarian danger to democracy itself. And there are definitely people in American political life today who would love to charge their ideological opponents with sedition. So that's why... We don't bring charges of sedition, uh, really, with regard to seditious speech anymore. And again, seditious conspiracy, you know what? If people show up with bombs, charge them for bringing bombs. They show up with weapons, charge them with bringing weapons. They assault police, they conspire, charge them with that. But uh, sedition insurrection, they've, they've gone away. And, you know, I think that if you imagine what someone like Bill Barr would do if these charges 
were commonplace in the American uh, political system and the American legal system. Uh, you, this is a good reason. There's, there's excellent reasons as to why sedition and insurrection are not being charged against the January 6th defendants. All right, well, I know it, it is a solemn commemoration, um, you know, and I did this episode uh, especially for the uh, commemoration of January 6th. Again, I want to thank you very much for your listenership. Um, if you have any questions or comments, uh, contact me on Twitter, uh, Scott Kuhn, uh, Cap Insur Rep. And um, I don't want to say have a happy January 6th, um, but, you know, commemorate it in full knowledge of the fact that consequences are coming for the insurrectionists.